In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. <clears throat> God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Joshua. Um, does anyone who was here last time want to give us a recap of what we discussed? I believe it was chapters uh, 6 and 7 last time. So the fall of Jericho, right? So the the Israelites, after they had crossed over the Jordan, um, God told them to walk around the city of Jericho um, for seven days. The first day, uh, six days, they would walk around once and they blow trumpets. And then the last day, on the seventh day, they walked around seven times. Um, and then after that, the walls of Jericho fell down and the people went and they killed and destroyed um, the, the rest of the city. Okay. Um, and then there was another battle that happened as well that we talked about last time in chapter 7. So there was a man, his name is Achan, yeah? The battle of the city of Ai, okay? And, and what happened with that city? There's a microphone somewhere here. They lost because Achan had taken some of the, <coughs> like the stuff that God told him not to take from Jericho. Right, so God had said that, that no one should take anything from the city of Jericho. And that all of like the precious metals like silver, gold, bronze, iron would be taken and put into the treasury of the Lord for this is the, the service of the tabernacle. Um, but this man, Achan, he took some of these accursed things and he hid it in his tent. And so when the people went up against this second city, the city of Ai, even though it was a small city and they felt like they should be able to take it with ease, and they didn't even send the full force of the people against it, but they were quickly defeated. And then after their defeat, they were very um, distressed and they asked God, why did he allow this to happen? And he revealed that it was because of the sin of Achan. And we spoke about how God saw that the sin of the one person was a sin of the whole people. Um, and that he did not want this sin and this attitude of disobedience to spread. And so he made an example of Achan and he, he had him to be killed um, as a punishment for what he had done. And that's where we had left it uh, last time. So now at the beginning of chapter 8, okay, um, we have kind of the second attempt uh, to go after I, after the people had repented and after Achan had been dealt with. So now the people are going to go up uh, against the city of Ai again. So he says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. So God is reconfirming again his covenant. And he is reconfirming what he told them at the beginning, which was, uh, that he would be with them and that he would grant them victory over all of the battles and all everything that they would encounter. Why is it that God would do this now? Again. Because it wasn't correctly done the first time. What wasn't correctly done? Like they didn't defeat them right but why is it that god is saying again do not be afraid nor be dismayed take all the people of war with you and go up like the his the way that god is, is speaking to them is, is 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 what what is he doing 
He's comforting them to remind them that he is still with them. Okay? And we see this as um, like a pattern that whenever we fall, okay, God wants to communicate to us that we are still loved by him, that we are still his children, that he still cares about us, that we haven't destroyed, you know, um, all of our future or the covenant that he made. I mean, this covenant that God here is is um, fulfilling is a covenant that was made hundreds and hundreds of years ago, right? And so is it the case that this man, Achan, and his sin is going to cause all of this promise that God had made from so long ago to be completely uh, canceled? No. Once the people repented, then God is telling them, I have restored your relationship with me again, right? And, and this is something that we have to remind ourselves that, you know, sin has consequence, okay? Um, meaning that whenever we commit sin, we attach ourselves to the object of our sin, right? So for instance, someone can become addicted to a specific sin. And when they, but when they repent, their relationship to God is restored. Their relationship to God is not broken. But it doesn't mean that the effects of the sin are removed, right? That person might continue to struggle with the effects of what it is that they have done or the consequence. Like maybe a simple example is someone who commits a crime, goes to prison, okay? They can still be repentant and they can still go to heaven and they can still have a relationship with God, but they're in prison, right? So here there is the difference between these two things. God is reconfirming his relationship with them, definitely. You know, and he wants them to rise and he wants them to feel like, no, you haven't destroyed the your your destiny or your path or anything. It's still it's still on track, you know? Maybe it was delayed. Maybe you had to suffer the death of people, right? It says that there were 36 people that had died when they went up against the city of Ai, having sinned against God and without God's support. So there is a damage that happened to the people, right? There is a fear that entered them. There are people that had been killed. There is there is a real consequence that happened. But the, res the, the relationship with God is restored and the encouragement is restored and the future that God has planned for his people is remains the, the same. So we have to make this distinction. Sometimes we feel that the consequences of our sin almost like uh, prevent us from returning to God again because we have made a mess of things so much because the consequences of, of our sin are so bad we feel like we cannot come back. Maybe a perfect example of this is St. Peter. You know, St. Peter who, who, who denied Christ, right, um, three times, would feel in himself like what he has done cannot be undone. It cannot be, it, it cannot be healed. It cannot be restored. And nothing could ever cancel what is it that he had done. But we see how Christ came to him in a gentle way and restored him again the three times for the three times that he had um, had sinned, and in that same conversation, as the Lord is restoring St. Peter again, he restores his apostleship, he tells him of his future, you know, and his future is martyrdom. He's telling him, you will continue on this path, and you will be martyred for my sake. And and so he is recommitting his his rank and his position, everything. So he didn't, he couldn't, can't cancel what is it that, he, that had happened, but 
God can restore us and to make us to continue to walk and even to help us to learn from the mistakes that happen. Like this situation, it, one of the reasons that it was so severe on Achan is because God wanted the people to see the consequence of disobedience and rebellion. And this is exactly what they saw. So this was a lesson for them to look at it and to remember it so that moving forward in their life, this is something that they could benefit from. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. Okay, so this time when attacking this city, God tells them that they can take of the loot of the city. Okay, it's almost like the very first time God wanted to test their restraint. And he wanted to test their obedience. He wanted to test them to see um, whether they would follow him or not. And again, keep in mind, like these people have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And this is the first time they come to a, like an established city that I'm sure has many things in it that they did not have access to, right? The silver and the gold and all these things, wandering in the desert, all of the comforts that they had in this city that they did not have access to. And God told them, do not touch it. This is not yours to take. And the gold is mine, okay? But this time, now God is saying what I'm allowing you to take, right? Like I'm allowing you to take of it. It's like the first thing that was given was almost like a sacrifice that the people were making to God, almost kind of like how we think of tithing, right? Like the first fruits. Like the first thing that we receive, we give it to God, right? Even though we want it, we desire it. You know, like a person, for instance, who gets a new job and they get a paycheck maybe for even for the first time, and they take that first paycheck and they give it to the church or they give it to the poor, right? Like it's not an easy thing to do when it's your very first paycheck, right? But what you are saying is I give the first fruit, I give the best to God and God will bless the rest, okay? So this is kind of like a similar thing. Like, like in Jericho, the people will be blessed for their obedience with the rest, okay? So now he's saying the spoil, it's cattle, you shall take for yourselves. And he's also giving them a battle strategy, okay? And we'll, we'll read more about what is the battle strategy, saying lay an ambush for the city behind it. So it says, So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men. Okay, remember how many were there the first time they tried to attack? Yeah, like a few thousand. Now he's taking 30,000, okay? So he's not going to make that mistake again. Mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they, came out, when they come out against us at the first that we shall flee from before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say they are fleeing before us at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Okay? So he's, he's planning a kind of a deception, right? So there'll be a group hiding behind the city, and then another group will come as though they are coming to attack, and they will draw away all of the people from the city of Ai to chase after them, and they run away, and that will leave the city unguarded so that this group who is hiding in the back of the city can rise up um, and, and attack. Okay? This also is a reflection of something. Like in the, in the first um, uh, battle with Jericho, uh, 
what we saw was yes it, it was a human effort with a god effort right so god told the people what to do but the emphasis is on the work of god like you could see the work of god clearly because the work of man and walking around the city there was really no direct effect of them walking around the city to make the walls to fall so the it was a very very clear indicator of how god is present and working okay here in this city in this battle you see kind of the other aspect of it right you see that they're making battle plans and they're like have this design this plan in order to win the battle so when you look at it the emphasis is on the human portion of the fight and the human ingenuity right the human strategy and the human work okay but we also know that prior to this when they tried to attack the city they failed because why because god was not blessing it so it's very clear in both situations how both god and man work together in order to accomplish something okay and it requires both the blessing of god and the work of man in order for something to succeed in the city of jericho we see clearly the work of god and in the city of Ai, we see more clearly the work of man and and the need to think and to plan and to use the minds that god has given us um, and so on okay but they are doing it together another example of this is in the battle of rephidim this is the battle that happened long ago uh, where <coughs> where moses was on the mountain praying and joshua was fighting with the people and as long as moses was praying with his arm lifted the people would win and if his arms grew weary and he brought them down the people would lose again it is a kind of uh, an indicator showing how the work of god and the work of man go hand in hand and so we apply this also to salvation so we say what is the work of salvation how is it that we are saved well we are saved by we need two things we need the blessing of god the grace of god the blood of christ but we also need our human work we also need our faith in the blood of christ which is reflected in our works so salvation is not by human work but also salvation is not only by the grace of god without human work right so it is there is the synergy of uh, the work of god and the work of man together this is in contrast to a belief of some um, Christian traditions, uh, which is something called monergism. Okay, monergism, the word mono meaning one, and the word erg comes from the the Latin word word for work, so it means one work, or there is one person who works, and that's God. Okay, so there are some Christians that believe that salvation is completely by the work of God alone, and the human uh, kind of participation in salvation is many minimal or not at all to the maximum extent of like for instance a purely calvinist view which which believes that human beings are essentially chosen by god you know we they call it predestination right human beings are predestined by god for salvation or predestined for condemnation and no amount of human work or effort is going to change your status right this is this extreme view uh, of 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 this uh, idea that God alone is the one who works, whereas we, of course, as Orthodox, we don't believe this. We believe that our participation in the work of God is essential. We cannot be saved without the grace, but we also cannot be saved unless we respond to the grace with our own actions. And it will be 
When you have taken the city, that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush, and stayed between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning, and mustered the people, and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. So every single soldier, every single person that could fight went out from the city, believing that they were going to defeat them because they were running away. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as, as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it, and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way, and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. So now the group that came from the front turned around and is now beginning their attack as well. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they had pursued them. Uh, and when they all had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he had stretched out the spear, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which had he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. So the city was completely destroyed. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Okay, so that was the battle. Okay? Um, and, and they destroyed the city. 
Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Okay, so what was the first thing that Joshua did after the victory? He built an altar and he offered a sacrifice to God, which again shows that he understood very well that this victory, even though it appears like a human victory, because there were human beings that were fighting, there were strategy and battle plans, there were people who attacked from this side and this side, and they did a lot of work, right? But he knew that God is the one who granted victory. And you know, sometimes we cannot point to anything um, specific uh, in a project or in a decision or in our life to say this specific thing was done by God. Sometimes it's not clear. Like there are some things where it's clear. There are some things where like something happens that's just so much of a coincidence or it's so clear that God is working in some kind of very mystical way to where we understand that God is working. But there are a lot of times where we don't see really what is it that God is doing. For instance, when we have, let's say, peace in our families, okay, we have peace in our home. What is it that God is doing specifically? Maybe it's hard to point to one specific thing. It is the blessing of God in a general way. Right? It is the blessing of God upon a whole group of people or, or a whole project or, 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 or on me. Right? Just like when it says about Joseph that he was a righteous man and everything he did, God made it to prosper. How is it that God is making Joseph to prosper? It's not that everything that Joseph did was miraculous. It's not that every time he walked, like everything, you know, birds would come and land on him and things were obviously clear that this was like miraculous. No. But everything he did succeeded. Right? So the blessing of God is something intertwined with the normal human activity, okay? Here, Joshua acknowledged that this was God who granted victory. You know, a lot of times we, you know, we, we're quick to forget. Like we, we, you know, maybe the first reaction we have whenever we would have like a victory like this, it would just, we'd have a party, right? Like we are celebrating our victory. We're, 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 we're enjoying ourselves because of everything that we have accomplished, Okay. But the first thing that Joshua did before they are going to enjoy the victory is they remember that God is the one who brought this victory and that without him they would have had no victory. Okay. Also, the way that he is offering this sacrifice on this altar. Okay, so there is there is context here, okay, for us to understand. So first it says that he built an altar on Mount Ebal. Okay? So there is some significance to Mount Ebal, and I will read from you in Deuteronomy chapter 27 to give us some kind of context on the way that he, uh, the way that he built this altar. So it says, Now Moses, when the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime, and you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you 
a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised. Okay, so this is this stones that they are setting up and writing on them. Okay, uh, this uh, copy of the law of Moses, which is what he's saying he's doing here. He wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Also, um, prior to here, when it says. Um, he built the altar as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel as is written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool this was also a commandment we actually discussed this I think in the book of Exodus uh, when, when we were studying that so Joshua is fulfilling the things that God had told the people and told Moses from much earlier that when they would cross over they would um, they would set up this altar and they would write on the stones, they would write uh, uh, the law of Moses on it. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests and the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Okay? There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Okay? So what is this Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal? Here you see a picture there is this valley in between these two mountains, and this is where the city of Shechem is. And on one side, you have Mount Gerizim. On the other side, you have Mount Ebal. Okay? In the book of Deuteronomy, God had designated that one of these mountains is called the Mountain of Blessing, which is Mount Gerizim, and one of the mountains is called the Mountain of Cursing, which is Mount Ebal. And he took six of the tribes, six of the 12 tribes, and he told them to stand on Mount Gerizim, and, and as they were standing on Mount Gerizim, they are declaring all the blessings that God is uh, declaring for the people who are obedient. The blessings of obedience, the blessings of those who follow the law. These six tribes who are on Mount Gerizim are declaring it. Okay. Then on the other six tribes who are standing on Mount Ebal are declaring all of the curses of disobedience. And this is all, this is all in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Okay. So, so this like dichotomy that makes it very clear that the blessings is on one side and the cursings is on the other side okay and these are two very clear and distinct things that god is saying if you follow my commandments you will be blessed and if you disobey my commandments you will be cursed and so mount ebal which is the mountain here that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 27 this is the mountain where they were um, where they set up the altar uh, and offer the sacrifice to God. Okay. So that we're done with the scene of the city of Ai and conquering it and offering sacrifice. Now they are going to continue conquering. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan and the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard about it that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So if you remember, there's all these different peoples that are living in this land. This is not like one united kingdom. 
all of these different people, all these different ethnic groups. And yet they all know Joshua, and they all know the Israelites, and they all know the God of Israel and what he is doing with them. So they feel very threatened because they know God has commanded them to come and to take the land for themselves. So they decide to make an agreement and a treaty with one another so that they would all fight Joshua together. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Okay, so there was this other group called the Gibeonites. And so they are doing this. Why do you think the Gibeonites are doing this? Why would they put on all this old clothing and they would have moldy bread? Why would they do that? That they're weak. So if they are weak, does that mean that Joshua is not going to kill them? Right? Because God told them to kill all those people. So if they're weak, why would God why would they spare them if they're weak? Why would they make a treaty with them? But why would why would Israel accept to have a treaty with them if God commanded them to destroy everyone? Like that would be against what God is commanding. They lied? What are they, what are they lying about? Where they live. Okay. So because they're not part of that land that's that they're gonna be killed from, they can make a treaty and it would be it would be seen as a good work or a merciful work. So so why what 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 is the old donk the old clothes and the dry and the dry bread and all that? What is that indicating? Long distance. Long distance. So they are pretending like they don't live in Israel, in the Canaan. They are pretending that they live far away and that they've been on a long journey and that's why all their clothes are tattered and that's why they only have moldy bread and all this stuff. And so when they meet with Joshua, they're going to say, oh, we don't live here. We are on a long journey. Look, all of our clothes are old and everything is old and torn and all this stuff. It's actually very smart, okay? That's why they did it. That's why they did it. <coughs> so they're like the only people who thought to themselves, um, we can't just go and do what everyone else is doing because there's no hope, okay? And actually, see how the Gibeonites had, and the church fathers speak about how the Gibeonites had some measure of faith, but the faith did not result in good works. It, re it, res it didn't result in repentance. It didn't result on the accepting of God. It, result it resulted in a way of trying to, like, self-preservation based on the faith that they had about who God is and what God is doing, right? But it didn't, it didn't bring them to believe. Like, it didn't bring them to worship God. It brought them in the wrong way, in the wrong place. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So it says, And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal. And they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? So they're saying to them, 
Like, how do we know that you are from far away? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a, far, from a very far country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Hezbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Okay? So, so this is what Origen says about like, their measure of faith. They're saying, well, we, have, we have heard of the Lord your God. I mean, certainly they have heard, right? This is what he says. He says, in the church there are two Christians who believe in God. Do not argue his commandments. Sorry, sorry. In the church there are true Christians who believe in God. Do not argue his commandments, consummate their religious duties, and are always ready to minister. Yet, in their personal life and behavior, they are not pure but are unclean. They do not put off the old man with his deeds, but are like the Gibeonites, who put on their old garments and torn sandals. They believe in God and show respect toward the church and the ministers of the Lord, yet they do not demonstrate in their behavior any sign of inner renovation. They wish that God might grant them salvation, yet this salvation does not spare them the shame that befalls them. In a book by the name of the Shepherd, we find a similar portrait of this category of people. It speaks of the tree stem that does not produce fruits, yet the vine climbs over it, producing plenty of grapes. Although the tree stem itself is barren, yet its role is important and of benefit in serving the vine. The same we see in the Gibeonites. Though not putting off the old man with all his deeds, yet we find them ministering to the saints as woodcutters and water carriers, because that they're going to essentially become slaves, which make them have a rather important role. That is why they receive salvation from Joshua according to the covenant he made with them. We do not want to receive such salvation. We do not wish to become woodcutters or water carriers. We want to be true Israelites, to enjoy the inheritance and to have a portion in the land of promise. So he's saying their faith that they expressed is not one that led to salvation. Okay, The, the faith that they expressed is like, he says, a person who is um, very like does not argue the commandments of God, who believes God, who is uh, diligent in their religious duties, is always ready to serve, yet in their personal life and their behavior, they are not pure but are unclean. They did not put off the old man with his deeds. And this is uh, a, a, a difference between the outer worship and the inner worship. Okay, There are many churches in the West nowadays that are focusing only on the outer worship in the form of what? Social services, helping people, giving charitably to the poor, wanting to serve others. These things are important and necessary. But this is not the whole of the spiritual life because the core of the spiritual life is a relationship with God himself. Okay, is a spiritual engagement with God. It is a repentance. It is an inner transformation and change that begins to happen in baptism and continues the process of sanctification for the rest of our life. And from this inner transformation comes a love of man and a desire to serve and so on and so on and so on. Okay? Whereas here, Origen is comparing these Gibeonites to a person who is only caring about the outward, meaning that their, their, their faith is not complete. Right? They are, they are in some sense believing in God, 
but that belief is not leading them to salvation. That belief is not leading them to inner transformation. That belief is not leading them to be Israelites, but actually, what is it that they will become? They will become these woodcutters and water carriers like servants because Joshua is in a situation now because he's going to believe them. So we'll see here what happens. It says, Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants now. Therefore make a covenant with us. So they're lying all this, saying, We came on a long journey. We were told to come and to meet you. And we are coming as your servants, like in this humble way. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. So they're telling them this really sobby, sad story about how they suffered and how they traveled for so long. And please have pity on us. Okay. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Okay. Well, they made an agreement with them not to destroy them because they believed that they are not actually dwelling there. They are just travelers. Okay. Um, of course, we know that this was a lie. Note that it says they did not take counsel of the Lord. They foolishly believed them. And what story did they foolishly believe? They believed this very emotional, sad story. Okay? They had pity on them because of what they were saying. Okay? Maybe also we, whenever we are presented with something in a very emotional way, it causes us to question the principles that we believe in and we abide by because we begin to have pity on a person for some scenario or some situation that they're in, even though maybe it contradicts what is it that God has said. Like I give you like typical, very common example. You know, you have someone who did not live with Christ, did not believe in Christ in any way, um, even though having the opportunity to do so, and they die apart from Christ, right? But you look at their life, and their life is what we would call good in the sense that they don't kill people and they are try to be kind and they 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 try to help others and they do good things and nobody nobody can look at their life and say this was a bad person or an evil person in any way okay but what is it that Christ said Christ said that there is no salvation apart from him right so even though maybe it is emotionally difficult to tackle the idea that this person because they're a good person is definitely in heaven that people want to believe this. And when maybe the family members of this person comes and they ask, well, where did he go to heaven? You know, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. Or people will say, but he was such a good person. What do we believe about this? It's a difficult question to answer. We know the answer from the scriptures, right? But to deal with that question is difficult. Right? How do we answer in the right way? Apart, though, from the way that we answer the question and kind of the discernment and the wisdom that we use in answering the question, there is the core belief, right? The core belief, what is it that we actually believe? Are we so swayed by the emotions? You know, are we so swayed by what people come and they say, but we want to live a certain way, 
But we, we are not hurting anyone but the way that we are living, right? You know, what is our response to people who come and to offer like uh, an emotional account of, of some situation that goes against God's commandments? Do we stand and say, well, no, you know, God does not, he does not allow for this. Or God said such and such, this is the truth. Because if we don't do that, if we are not um, direct and, and, and clinging to what is it that God has said, then the church loses its function. You know, like imagine, you know, we always use this example of the church as a hospital. What if somebody were to go to the hospital who has cancer and they don't want to believe that they have cancer because anyone who gets news that they have cancer obviously is going to be upset. So you don't want to upset them. So they come to the doctor. The doctor does all the tests. He discovers that this person has cancer, but he doesn't have the heart to tell them. So he says, no, you're fine. Everything's good. You know, nothing bad is going to happen. Just, just keep living the way that you're living and everything is good and you're a healthy person. Well, that person is going to walk out of the hospital happy because there's nothing wrong with them as far as they understand. But the person has a real disease that if it's not dealt with, then the person is going to die. And so this is the question that we are dealing with and this is what the role of the church is. Sometimes in the church, we have to give uncomfortable and painful um, truth that is difficult even for us. You know, sometimes the people think that the difficult things that the church preaches is like always directed outward. Like, yeah, we are telling the world that you are sinners. We are telling the world that you cannot live the way you want to live. We are telling the world. No, actually, we're telling ourselves too because maybe I don't want to live a certain way. Maybe there's something I want to do that I can't do. Maybe, the, maybe I'm condemning myself for my own sin along with you. So our preaching is not directed toward outside. Our preaching is for all of us, and we are included. So we are just as much convicted of sin as the rest of the world whenever we live contrary to the commandment of God. So we are not in any way giving ourselves a pass. We are not saying, come join our club, and if you join our club, you're in, and everything is good for you, and you're going to heaven. you know. But everyone else on the outside, no, you guys are the sinners and condemned. We're not saying that. We're saying we all are the same. The difference is of what is it that we have is we have forgiveness, right? We have forgiveness. We have the work of the Holy Spirit. We have the grace of God. We have the transformation that happens through the grace of God. But we are human beings, just like the human beings who are outside. So here Joshua, he heard this story, and he being kind of, you know, having pity on these people, believing their story without taking counsel, without asking God or praying about it, he made a rash decision, right, based on the emotions he felt in that moment that was wrong. It was the wrong decision, right? So we also need to be careful whenever we are presented with different ideas. Don't be so quick to rush to an emotional decision. You know, I'm so emotional the more about this person. No, wait, think about it first, okay? Is this true or is it not true? Is it right or is it not right? And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. So after three days, they realized this was all a farce, right? It was all a lie. The Gibeonites are actually living with them, okay? Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chepherah, Beeroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. So they went to see what's up. You know, because they realized that this was all a lie. 
But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath which we swore to them. What do you think about this decision? Was it the right decision or the wrong one? They'll make them slaves, and then uh, there will be a huge problems in the coming years uh, or in the following years uh, by them. Yeah, they will make them slaves. And, and because these people are pagan, and their pagan practices can rub off on the Israelites. Okay? So that's definitely a consequence of the decision that they made. But they made a vow. So is it okay to break the vow? Well, it's not okay to break the vow, but God told them to destroy all the people. So that's also not okay. So what do we conclude? <laughs> conclude what is there? This is an impossible situation, right? Because you, no matter what you choose, you're doing something wrong. And this is what sin brings. Sin brings no good option. You know, like so many times... There are situations, maybe like, okay, like like we have to deal with, maybe as, like as priests, for instance, where there is no good solution. Both solutions have some aspects of them that are wrong. But you're now trying to balance what is the worst wrong? What is the, what is, what is the thing that maybe has a greater potential of being good? You know? And using discernment to try to figure this out is not easy because at this point they're they're in a situation where there's no good way who who is the other famous person that um that we had talked about when we were studying the book of judges who was put in this situation japheth is it japheth or jephthah i always forget which of the two it is he was one of the judges and he asked god to grant him victory in the battle and that if God were to grant him victory in battle, he would sacrifice the first person who would enter into his house. What kind of ridiculous vow is this? But that's what he said. So now he's in this situation. Who was it who came in? His daughter. Right? So, so what, is, what is the right decision? Both are wrong. Sacrificing a person is wrong. Breaking a vow is wrong. Right? That's why... Christ said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, because you're never going to have to deal with this, okay? So again, like foolish, like foolish decisions puts us in a situation where there is no right choice, okay? And that's very, very hard um, to deal with. And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. So this was their compromise. Their compromise is that we're not going to kill you, <coughs> but essentially you become our slaves. That's what they chose, to be their servants. They would do like menial work, menial labor, but in return, we won't kill you. Then Joshua called for them 
And he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us? Saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us. Actually, so back to that point. At this point in history, the Israelites were still establishing themselves. Like, they still had not conquered the whole country, right? It still didn't belong to them. They were very early in the stages of fighting. So they were, for the most part, trying to obey what God told them and destroying all these different people. By the time we get into the book of Judges, and I believe it's in Judges chapter 2, the Israelites had kind of gotten war-weary of fighting, and they felt, you know what, we're strong enough now. We have a good hold of the land, and everyone is frightened of us. So why should we go and destroy all of these people? Let's just make them slaves. Because by making them our servants, now we are benefiting, right? Because we, it's easy for us now to control. It's easy for us to, 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 to benefit from these people. They're not a threat to us, okay? And so that's what they began to do. And in Judges chapter 2, God condemns them for this action. And he tells them actually that because they are doing this, then God is essentially going to allow them to fall into the hand of their enemies. And this becomes planting the seeds that is eventually going to result in the destruction of Israel and the exile of the people that we read about that's going to happen many, many years later. This is the beginning. Like This is the, the genesis of the destruction of Israel that we are seeing right now. This behavior. Maybe not this specific one, because they were put in this difficult situation at this point. But later on, they willfully do this for no reason, just because they want to. And it becomes now preparing for the fall. So Joshua goes to them. He says, why have you deceived us? Okay. Um, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell near us. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because you have done, because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. So you see here this measure of faith that they had. They believed that, um, that God told Moses that he would give them the land. And he, be they, he believed that this actually was going to happen. Okay, So they had some kind of a faith. But the faith did not result in their conversion. Right? It was an external, superficial faith. How can I benefit from this knowledge? but not how can I submit my will to this God, right? You have people who, they believe in God, but for them, God is a tool, a means to an end. How can I benefit from his existence? How can he give me what I want, right? How can I use him to further my life and advance whatever cause that I have? And that's the way that people see God as a, as a, as a tool to be used, okay? Not as... In, in Christianity, right, in orthodoxy, we don't see God as, like, God is our tool. We, we pull him out. We use him whenever we need, like a, like, a, like, like a tool, right? No, we are saying we are submitting our lives to him. We're saying we are not directing even our own lives, but we are allowing God to direct our lives and to submit to him. So we are placing him so above ourselves in every way, right? 
And that's what that's why we worship God, right? Worship is a complete like act of humility and and submission, right? To worship a being who you believe is higher and better than you are. Okay? That's the way that we we see God. That's the way we worship God. That's the way we should be, right? So both groups have faith. Both groups believe in the existence of God. But one group, like these Gibeonites, they, they are saying, how can I use this to my benefit, right? Whereas the other group is living in complete obedience to God. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose, even to this day. Okay, this is a good stopping point, I think, um, before starting the next chapter. Um, and the next chapter, they continue their conquest, and there's actually a famous miracle that happens in Joshua chapter 10, which is where... Um, where uh, Joshua asks God like a very strange request. Does anyone know what it is? It's the only time that anyone ever asked God this. He asked God to make the sun stand still so that the day will not end until they finish defeating their enemies. And we'll talk about it more last time, but it's interesting when you try to read about these, um, like this miracle, you find out actually that uh, there are many cultures that believe that this actually happened. Um, I believe in the Mexican culture, I believe there's something in the Chinese culture where they believe that there was a day where the sun actually did stand still. So we'll talk, huh? I mean, we believe that it happened. How we interpret that God made the sun stand still, how is it that the day did not end? You know, I, I, I don't know. Right. Um, some people even say like astronomically, there's like a day that's not accounted for. I don't know if that's true. Um, but uh, but yeah, we'll talk about it more next time. So make sure everybody comes. So, OK. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O Lord, to deepen our faith and to make us, O Lord, not to have a superficial faith, a faith, O Lord, that translates into us doing some external actions and activities and things, O Lord, to be seen and things from the outside without having an inner transformation and an inner change that happens in each of us. Grant us, O Lord, a heart of repentance and a heart of humility and a heart, O Lord, to submit ourselves to you in every way and to submit our will to you and to follow your commandments completely and to seek, O Lord, forgiveness from you when we depart from your commandments. We thank you, O Lord, for allowing us to read your word and to have it to be a guide to our life. Strengthen us, O Lord, and let us to read it and meditate on it and to see, O Lord, your will for our lives through it. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.